Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning. Will you please stand with me as we read our teaching text today? It's from Romans chapter 16, verse 1 through 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the Church of Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this Sunday, this time of fellowship uh, with your people, and ask that you would just open up our hearts to what you you have to share with us through your spirit today. Uh, be with John. Let his words be your words, Lord. Grateful for this church. All this in your name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here. I hope that you're coming in today rested and refreshed, or maybe you're coming in uh, nursing a wound of one kind or another. Life, life does that to us. I don't know if you're coming in today and you're among friends or you're among strangers and your blood pressure is up. Uh, I don't know if you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you vehemently disagree with us. Uh, But this morning, I don't think that anybody is here by mistake. Uh, The Holy Spirit's been the one drawing us in uh, toward toward Jesus and toward each other. And so I want to say to each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're welcome, and I'm glad that you're here. And God bless you, Autumn. You've got the worst seat in the house. (laughs) I've got the, the pole right there in the way. I'll step back just for you, okay? Well, there's a lot of pressure in our highly anxious, highly reactive world uh, for a pastor every single Sunday to speak out on the thing that was in that week's news. And instead of doing the year of the Bible, we could just as easily do the year of current events. Uh, And it would be super easy. In fact, there are people like social media influencers who get on pastor's cases and say stuff like, if your pastor doesn't talk about this subject on Sunday morning, leave your church immediately. Also subscribe to my blog and like my podcast. <laughs> that stuff happens all the time. But I'm not, gonna, uh, I'm not going to like lay down the offensive strategy that we have of systematically teaching through the Bible to be defensive and reactive and fearful all the time just because we're supposed to respond to everything in our reactive culture. I don't want to do that. But sometimes there are those moments where a conversation is so ripe where the pitch just comes right across the plate, where you have to take a swing at it. And that happened this week, uh, this last week, where a pastor named John MacArthur, um, who's been in pastoral ministry for over 50 years, he's written a bunch of books. One of the first books I bought as a 17, 18-year-old on how to read the Bible came from John MacArthur. And I remember my manager at Store 359 at Office Depot, when I was working there in college, got onto my case about reading this John MacArthur book. He's making fun of me. But John MacArthur was at a conference uh, celebrating 50 years of ministry for him, and they did this really immature, gimmicky conversation where John MacArthur was seated down with a moderator, and the moderator was to give him some words, and John MacArthur was to do some word association and respond with the first thing that came to his mind. 
So the first thing that was up was uh, the name Beth Moore. Now, if you don't know, Beth Moore is an incredibly gifted Bible teacher. Uh, she's a woman in the Southern Baptist Church. She has led countless countless people to Christ. Her ministry is amazing. And John MacArthur has said, like, what's the first thing that comes to mind or that you want to say when the name Beth Moore comes up? And right out of the gate, he says, go home, which uh, the room erupts with laughter, which tells you something about the beliefs of the people in that room. The belief was that Scripture forbids the women of leadership in the church. And there are times on a surface reading of the text where it's totally understandable that people would arrive at that conclusion. We're going to deal with this a bit later, but look at 1 Timothy 2. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And I hope that for those of you who have been in Cornerstone for long enough, you know that I'm a person who affirms the authority of Scripture. I want, like, my, my ambition is to submit to the teaching of Scripture even when it's unpopular. If you'd like an example of that, in February, I, I preached a sermon about homosexuality. Uh, it's called Fountain of Life. Uh, you can go back. It's very long. Uh, but I want to be a person who submits to the teaching of Scripture even when it's not popular. But I also affirm that being mean and smug and belittling people in the ac- application of Scripture is out of line with Christoformity. It's, it's like it completely violates the law of love that we see in Jesus, and it's just unbecoming to a follower of Christ. So the attitude from John MacArthur is, in my view, uh, devastatingly unacceptable. It, and it insults the kindness and the generosity of God. And the hubbub with John MacArthur centers around the conversation of power dynamics in the church. Who's got the upper hand on whom? And it just so happens that that's what Paul's letter to the Romans is all about. It's all about power dynamics in the church. And so this morning, we're going to talk about power in the church, the community of faith. We're going to talk about power dynamics in general, but we're going to talk about women in leadership in particular and why I believe we are right in cultivating an environment where men and women are given an opportunity to lead, to develop, to deploy their gifts in the local church, okay? So you may want to keep your Bible open to Romans. We're going to turn to a handful of scriptures this morning, which may be useful for you to see right in the text. So Romans, a big book. Uh, hopefully, if you're going through the year of the Bible, you've you read it this last week, or maybe you have read it before. Uh, the first, some things that you need to understand is that the first Christians in Rome were likely Jews, and their worship centered around the Jewish synagogue. And as the gospel began to go to Gentiles, Gentiles just means non-Jews, the the Jews played the role of kind of host in the church. They they thought of themselves as having a position of preference, like being kind of in charge. The Jews had, like because they were children of Abraham and inherited the promises of God, the Messiah had been promised to their people hundreds and thousands of years before, but the Gentiles here are new to the party. They're kind of like coming along. I can imagine in our context, there were a group of about 50 of us that started Cornerstone two years ago. And it'd be kind of like if the people who were on the launch team said to new people like, oh, so glad you're here. I'll be happy to show you around. I am a launch team member. It's just, it's just gross. And there's some of that that was happening uh, in, the, in the church in Rome, the Jews were feeling this air of superiority toward the Gentiles. 
The church had a Jewish flair. Uh, the Jews were the influencers and the leaders, and the Gentiles were the followers and the recipients. But all of these dynamics shifted when Emperor Claudius kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, which is attested to in history. It's also in Acts 18, uh, verse 2. All of the Jews are kicked out of Rome, and so who's left in these churches? It's all of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles begin to lead the church in their own way without the Torah, uh, the, the Old Testament teaching at the center. So when Emperor Claudius dies and some of the Jews trickle back to Rome, those Jews who had been part of the, the earliest worshiping communities find that now they are kind of on the outside. They're the people who are watching uh, the leaders in charge. The show had gone on without them. They were no longer the influencers that they had been. The power dynamics had shifted. And this was a melting pot church with high tensions because not only is it a church of Jew and Gentile, it's a church of slave and free. It's a church of rich and poor. And it's a church of men and women. And all of these differences uh, escalate into tension and everyone is wondering, they're jockeying for position and wondering where they stand in the power dynamics of the church. They had all come from a Roman society that stratified and classified people. There was a kind of caste system. So in Roman society, you knew who was really in charge. And so Paul, writing from the city of Corinth, uh, wants to address these class and gender and racial divisions within the church. And so he writes this magnum opus in the letter to the Romans. He doesn't write it as an abstract systematic theology, which is kind of how it reads and how many pastors teach it. He doesn't read it like a canonized version of mere Christianity. But he writes the letter to the Romans primarily as a pastoral and a theological megaphone for addressing these ethnic and gender and, and class divisions within the church and urging them toward a revolutionary acceptance of one another in Christ. If you read Romans 12 through 16 first and then read Romans 1 through 11, it makes so much sense. But what's interesting is that Paul didn't deliver this letter himself. Uh, Paul was, like I said, away in Corinth. He didn't deliver this letter himself. He sent somebody else to speak for him. Now, you can imagine in a church with clear, uh, like, organizational bubbles, we have people in different, uh, you know, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, men, women, who on earth is he going to send? Because in a divided and divisive church, whoever he sends is a message in itself. It's telling a story. It's reinforcing some point. But Paul also couldn't just send some token person that told the right story because of their gender or their ethnicity or their, their race. They needed to, he needed to pick a person who knew his mind, somebody who could represent his heart, somebody who could answer questions because, my goodness, I have tons of questions about the letter to the Romans. Paul needed someone he could count on to be reliable to represent him in that moment. So who does he choose? This comes from Scott McKnight's reading Romans backwards. He says, The Apostle Paul is one of the most influential thinkers in the history of the Christian world, and most influential among his writings is his letter to the Romans. This oft-claimed patriarchal male asks a wealthy, influential female, Phoebe, not only to deliver his prized letter, but also to read it to each of the five or six or more house churches in Rome. Letters in Paul's world were the embodied and scripted presence of the letter writer, in this case, Paul. And he chooses a woman to embody his letter. 
which means the face of, of Paul is first experienced as the face of Phoebe. Before anyone hears the letter, they encounter the body of Phoebe. Phoebe is a deacon. That Paul connects Phoebe's diaconate, diaconate just means like that she's of the order of deacon, uh, with the church of Centre seems to mean then that she has the more official role of being a deacon in that church, which means she's marked by Christian character and has gifts of leadership. Writers like Paul didn't hand their letters over to schmucks to stumble their way through the letters. He and his co-workers mentored their readers so they could read the letters in a way that made Paul seem present and his lived theology compelling. And so if you're there on uh, Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centre. Receive her in a manner worthy of the Lord because she's been a benefactor to many, including me. This is why he's saying that Phoebe is Paul's mouthpiece uh, in reading the letter to the Romans. And Phoebe, this woman, carries and delivers Paul's most important theological and pastoral work. And she's undoubtedly a strong woman. The name Phoebe means titaness. Now, Phoebe is a cute name, but it means titaness. This is a powerful woman. This is a woman who could not only go into these churches that probably would have preferred a male leader and a male reader, she travels 800 miles to deliver it. Now, why would Paul do that? Why on earth would he send Phoebe to read this letter in the church if women universally were not meant to lead in a mixed-gender environment? Why don't we see some kind of asterisk on Paul's remarks, you know, like this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon, but obviously she's not qualified for this, and I would have sent a man if I could, and having her speak goes against my universal principles, but I was in a bind, so throw me a bone. (laughs) If women universally are not meant to teach in a mixed-gender environment, why don't we see some kind of qualification like this? Makes you think. And why does Paul go on in chapter 16 to not just mention Phoebe, but to mention a whole host of other women? There's Phoebe, the deacon of the church. There's Priscilla, my co-worker in Christ, who is named before her husband. There's Mary, who worked hard among you. Junia, regarded as outstanding among the apostles. Is Paul saying here that Junia, this woman, was one outstanding apostle? You can make the case. There's Stachus, my dear sister. There's Narcissus. There's Tryphena and Tryphosa who worked hard in the Lord. Persis, my dear friend who's worked hard in the Lord. The mother of Rufus who's been a mother to me. There's Julia. There's Nereus' sister. And they're the sisters in the household of Asyncritus. He goes on to, to talk about all of these women and even hint at positions of leadership. He's speaking about them with both affection and with honor for the stuff that they've done. Why would he do that? A sociologist named Joseph Grinney said this. He said, public praise is more about influencing those who hear it than those who receive it. So you ask yourself the question, in what way might Paul be trying to influence the church in Rome? What message uh, is he trying to send? But if if we shift from, from Paul to the Bible more broadly, If the Bible is purported to teach, as some people believe, a universal principle that women should not lead in a mixed gender environment, how do we make sense of all the other women who do that in the Bible? 
What do we do with Miriam, the prophet, the sister of Moses and Aaron, who God himself says he speaks through her? She leads worship. She, she, she lives in the office of a prophet and helps with her brothers to oversee the nation of Israel. What do we do with Deborah the judge in the book of Judges who's making political decisions on behalf of the nation? What do we do with the wise woman of Abel who's negotiating a peace agreement? Withhold of the prophet who is speaking for God and is commanding kings in how to obey. What do we do with Esther who is a powerful woman who's using her power to influence the king and saves her nation? What do we do with all of these women? Women who direct worship, who lead, who advise, who speak for God, who command both men and women. And you may say, well, like, that's, that's five examples. Like, you already saw what I'm going to do, right? <laughs> that's five examples. Is that the best you got? This I'm borrowing from Susie Silk. She did this research, research a pastor at Church of the City, New York. Ah, here it is again. Talked about Hagar, about Sarah, about Zephorah, about the ministering women at the tabernacle, the, the daughters of Zelophehad, Rahab, Oxa, Yael, Samson's mom, Ruth, Hannah, Abigail, and talks about how in Proverbs, wisdom itself is personified as a lady. Wisdom cries out. Her voice is loud in the streets. All over the place. In addition to Romans chapter 16, in addition to those five big examples that I talked about in the Old Testament, but the many more that we could cite, a couple examples from the New Testament. One of them is really common. It's at the end of all of our Gospels. Who does Jesus select to be the first people to whom he reveals himself in his resurrected state? It's the women. The women are the first ones who are sent by Jesus to testify to the resurrection. That's the definition of apostolic ministry. Apostles means sent ones. It's the women who, though it's unpopular in a first century ancient Near Eastern culture to like build a historical argument based on the testimony of women, Jesus still did it. The women were the first to testify that he was the resurrected Son of God. But probably my favorite New Testament example comes to us from the story of Mary and Martha. Uh, let, let's just read it real quick from Luke 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he had said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, and so she came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Now, we typically use a text like this to talk about anxiety versus rest. Martha is the anxious one who's always like, you know, in a frenzied state, scurrying about, do her, doing her thing, and Mary is relaxed in, in her posture, and so we should be like Mary and not be like Martha. But Martha's not mad at Mary because she's unfrenzied. What offends Martha is that Mary is taking the posture of a disciple. Mary is seated at the feet of Jesus like a, like a student and rabbis took on students so that those students could become teachers themselves. And Mary is seated here at the feet of Jesus. Pretty big uh, assumption to be made there. What is Jesus going to do in response to it? Martha goes to Jesus and says, look, tell her to get back where she belongs in the kitchen. Martha's words. In other words, Martha, John MacArthur is just echoing Martha here. Go home. 
does Jesus confirm or does he deny that message? He says, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. She is where she belongs. In the posture of a disciple, a student of the rabbi. So the Old Testament is full, the New Testament is full of all these examples of women leading and teaching and assuming authority. So what on earth do we do with passages like MacArthur would cite in 1 Timothy 2 or in 1 Corinthians 14? These passages that on on a surface reading sure seem to advocate for the prohibition of women in leadership in mixed gender environments. Well, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. Okay, I highlighted the words should learn because I want you to notice them. Paul is saying that in a world where women are almost universally restricted from access to education, Paul is saying that women should learn. That's a, that's a revolutionary idea in the ancient Near East. It's also a revolutionary idea in some parts of the world today. Paul says a woman should learn. He's advocating for the education of women. The second thing I want you to notice about this is uh, this is a letter written by Paul addressed to a pastor, Timothy, who's in a particular context. And if you'll remember from our conversation last week on Acts chapter 19, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a pastor in Ephesus. Does anybody remember what is one of the central architectural features of the city of Ephesus? The temple to the goddess Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, this massive structure. And the temple to the goddess Artemis was was universally served by uh, female priestesses, by women who were priests. And so uh, Paul, writing to Timothy in Ephesus, which houses the temple to the goddess Artemis with these female-only priests, is speaking into a specific context. This comes from uh, N.T. Wright. He said, look, if you were writing a letter to someone in a small, new religious movement with a a base in Ephesus, and you wanted to say that because of the gospel of Jesus, the old ways of organizing male and female roles had to be rethought from top to bottom, such that the women were to be encouraged to study and learn and take a leadership role, you might well want to avoid giving the wrong impression. Was the apostle saying, people might wonder, that women should be trained up so that Christianity would gradually become a cult like that of Artemis, where women did the leading and kept the men in line? That is, it seems to me, what verse 12 is denying. Paul is saying, like Jesus in Luke chapter 10, that women must have the space and the leisure to study and learn in their own way. Not in order that they may muscle in and take over the leadership, as in the Artemis cult, but rather so that men and women alike can develop whatever gifts of learning, teaching, and leadership God is giving them. Then the crucial verse, verse 12, need not be read as, I do not allow a woman to teach or to hold authority over a man, the translation which caused so much difficulty in recent years, It can equally mean, and in this context makes so much more sense, I don't mean to imply that I'm now setting up women as the new authority over men in the same way that previously men held authority over women. 
Paul is addressing a specific town with a specific issue where the roles would have been reversed, where, whereas in some contexts, men have a position of domination over women because of the presence of the temple to Artemis. You might be think, I don't want you to get the wrong idea that now women are going to take charge just like it had been uh, otherwise in the past. Well, what about, what about 1 Corinthians? Uh, 1 Corinthians here, we'll just read it together. Women should remain silent in the churches. Well, that feels pretty clear. They're not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now listen, this simply cannot mean that women are never allowed to talk in the church. Why? Because only three chapters earlier, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives specific instructions about the manner in which women are meant to pray and to prophesy in the church. It assumes that they will pray and prophesy in the church. Um, so what's the deal? Well, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is talking about orderly worship. He talks about the role of tongues, uh, speaking in tongues. He talks about the role of prophecy. He talks about how we're to receive the body and blood of Christ at the table in a manner worthy of the Lord. He's talking about order in worship. And there was a particular problem within the church in Corinth that women who were uneducated were interrupting the worship service to ask questions. Now, this comes from a, a scholar named Craig Keener. He said, in ancient Greek and Jewish lecture settings, advanced students or educated people frequently interrupted public speakers with reasonable questions. Yet the culture had deprived most women of education. Jewish women could listen in synagogues, but unlike boys, were not taught to recite the law while growing up. Ancient culture also considered it rude for uneducated persons to slow down lectures with questions that betrayed their lack of training. So Paul provided a long-range solution. The husbands should take a personal interest in their wives' learning and catch them up privately. Most ancient husbands doubted their wives' intellectual potential, but Paul was among the most progressive of ancient writers on the subject. Far from repressing these women by ancient standards, Paul was liberating them. Now, I didn't cite it here, but I could have easily talked about the work of Ben Witherington that I looked at, Lucy Pepiat, others uh, who've, who've spoken into this issue. The bottom line, and my conviction is that in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy, Paul is speaking into highly specific contexts where specific issues and concerns are motivating this teaching that was not meant to be applied as a universal principle which he himself violated by encouraging the leadership of Phoebe, by assuming the leadership of, of women in the church praying and prophesying. He was not giving universal principles. He was speaking into specific contexts. Listen, all throughout the world, there are communities that are suffering when, men, when women are, uh, are, are denied an education. The economy suffers. Uh, health Infant mortality suffers. Women are often subjected to things like early childhood and sexual abuse. Everything goes wrong in a culture when women are oppressed and withheld opportunity for education, when women are not treated as equals. And the conclusion from my study is this, that in a robustly patriarchal ancient Near Eastern society, 
God's people have always practiced a countercultural elevation of the role of women with a trajectory over time toward increased authority, toward an affirmed identity and enhanced responsibility. Men and women were intended to co-rule the world on God's behalf, and it was on the first page of our Bibles. God created them, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's no preference for one being better than the other in Genesis 1. We are meant to co-rule the world on God's behalf together. That is the pre-fall desire of God. And while the Bible usually highlights and assumes male leadership, I would, I would cite Paul in, in Timoth- the letters to Timothy and Titus talking about the qualifications for a deacon. It says a deacon must be the husband of only one wife. Generally, the Bible assumes male leadership that is far from being the same thing as universally outlawing female leadership. And the Bible is clearly full of examples of women leading, but it shouldn't be full of those examples if women universally are meant not to lead. And we have examples from beginning to end of the contrary. Paul's letter to the Romans is a countercultural appeal to regard as equals those who Roman society say must be stratified and classified as less than. It's an appeal to view other people who are different than you as equals, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, and men and women. The letter to the Romans is an appeal to view each other through a different set of eyeglasses, to to see each other now as siblings in Christ, meant to demonstrate to the world through our love and respect for each other the reconciling love of Jesus Christ. I am married to a strong woman. I am. Emily Odom is a brilliant, has a brilliant mind. Emily is a gifted teacher. She is a natural leader. We are raising a seriously strong little lady who absolutely has the gifts of leadership and administration. I employ five gifted and anointed and strong women, and our church is full of gifted and anointed strong women who are given the Holy Spirit in equal measure to the men in our church. No, I'm not going to put them down. I'm going to treat as equal all whom God would treat as equal. So I, for one, am going to be a pastor, and we are going to be a church that cultivates and helps discern and and platform the leadership of men and women. It's what we're meant to do. All of this conversation has been primarily about gender, but Paul is talking about way more than gender. We could easily have a conversation about class, about socioeconomic classes. We could easily, and we need to in the city of Tulsa, have a conversation about race, Think about what's coming up in two years, the centennial of the Tulsa Race Massacre. We need to have those conversations. All of this like, gives us this countercultural picture for how to view people who are different than us. In what category we're going to label the people who are different than us. And Paul made this appeal in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he had some like, great like, bumper sticker verses like, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we'd be the righteousness of God. He said, the love of Christ compels us because we believe that one died for all. Therefore, we no longer regard anyone 
from a strictly worldly point of view. We look at people who are a different class than us, if that even exists, different ethnicities than us, different genders than us, and our our aspiration as followers of Jesus is to look at them through the lens of the reconciling love of God. Christ's love compels us. He died for all, not just the people in my middle-class bubble, not just the people that I like. He died for all. Therefore, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. It matters immensely how we think about the other human beings we occupy this planet with. God wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we see people through the lens of the love of Jesus Christ. So this morning we're talking chiefly about gender, but I just want to invite the Spirit of God as we have a time of prayer and before we come to the table to ask God to just search our hearts. What's the ethnic group that you don't like? The political group that makes your blood boil? Do you have this desire to put another person or another group of people in their place? Do you find that there are times where you would would classify an entire ethnic group under certain stereotypes? Jesus cares about this stuff. We are no longer to regard anyone from a worldly point of view because one died for all. So this morning, like, the table is meant to be a uniting thing. The table is meant to be the place where we see as if for the first time the people around us as family, where when we leave this building, there might be other things that separate us that might make us want to see each other as non-family. But at the table, we remember that we belong to one another. Paul said to the Galatians, there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. You are one in Christ. And Paul also said in his first letter to the Corinthians that when you come to the table, you must discern the body of Christ, which certainly meant for the earliest Christians the presence of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. But I think in the context of 11 through 14, certainly and definitely meant to discern the body of Christ in the faces of the people around you who may look different than you, who may live according to a different like, like socioeconomic lifestyle or class than you. Discern the body of Christ in this room. And it's wholly appropriate as we're coming to the table if you know that you've had bitterness in your heart toward a person or to a group of people, if you've had a temptation to label an ethnic group or, or to talk about the opposite gender in a way that's, uh, that's inflammatory or disrespectful, to repent of your sin, to ask God to forgive you, to renew you, and so that we can live together as the renewed people of God. And I love how Paul ends his letter to the Romans. He said, Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us a spirit of unity of unity among ourselves as we follow Christ so that together with one heart and one mouth we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you forgive us for following along with with unreflective and sinful scripts of the people in our social circles. Uh, Forgive us for going along with the tone of pundits on cable news and 
being formed chiefly by our political alliances and not by the kingdom of God motivated by the love of Jesus. I pray that you would renew us. Come, Holy Spirit, change our minds, change our hearts, help us to walk gently, help us to treat each other respectfully and lovingly. Give us eyes to see the, the way in which, you, like, through the Spirit, you've given gifts to each other and let us not put a stumbling block in each other's way. I pray specifically over just the topic of gender. And I don't know if it's God, but I, f- I feel like maybe there are women here, you've been explicitly insulted by pastors in the past and told, like, the, the equivalent of go home. God has not wasted his gifts on you. He has not given you gifts just so they can sit on the shelf. And there may be men in the room who you've been the one saying that stuff or thinking that stuff. It could be in a desire to honor Scripture and you don't know quite what to do with it. That's okay. But if it's out of malice, if it's a disrespect, if it's motivated, motivated by something other than love, repent. And if there are people you've harmed, apologize. God, search our hearts with the issue of race. Our our city has deep wounds. And I just confess that in in ways like we don't know what to do to mend those. So if there's steps that we can take as a local church, if there are things we can do as individuals to to mend the racial divide in our city, to be a part of the renewal of racial reconciliation in the city of Tulsa, we certainly want to do that. And God, we just put ourselves in your hands as we come to the table with open hands and open hearts. We want to be shaped. So, So Spirit, convict us encourage us, equip us, unify us so that people can see in us the reconciling love of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.